Hello, and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. You heard that right, two months for free. My guest today is Andres Krieg. Andres is an assistant professor at the Defense Studies Department of King's College, London. He's a strategic risk consultant working for governmental and commercial clients in the Middle East. Andreas's latest book, Subversion, the Strategic Weaponization of Narratives, was published by Georgetown University Press earlier this year. Our conversation today looks at the broader security issues for the region and the world of the ongoing Gaza-Israel war. Andreas, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Bill, for having me. This latest Gaza-Israel war has inflicted terrible civilian casualties thus far on Israelis and Palestinians. Um, Without in any way diminishing the human costs, can we step back and look at the security picture? How is this war different from previous ones in terms of regional security interests? Well, it is, it's far different from the previous iterations that we've had on multiple Gaza, during multiple Gaza wars in the last couple of, you know, 15 years or so, in the way that more is at stake. Uh, I think Israel is now hurt in a way, feeling pain in a way that it has not felt since, you know, they're saying pretty much since the War of Independence in 1948. But there's been this kind of victimhood narrative has been built up so far um, that Israel almost seems to be willing to do anything, whatever it takes, sustain any risk uh, and any cost uh, possible to achieve their objectives, whatever they may be uh, against Hamas. And I think that in that respect, Israel is preparing, I mean, not just for a military operation, but as it said from the beginning, it's preparing for war, uh, which is very different. Even in the war in 2006 against Hezbollah, it was clearly a war. But these were all fairly limited military operations. I think Israel is now preparing for a much broader military operation, potentially with a lot of uh, more than one front in Gaza, even if things start off uh, in, in Gaza. In that respect, there is a regional dimension to it uh, where it can very easily escalate. Uh, and an unhinged and unrestrained Israel is extremely dangerous particularly when it's led by someone like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who himself has been pursuing, you know, a kind of very questionable racist uh, ideologies and, and and policies together with the people in his cabinet who can only be described as fascists in, in terms of the narratives that they're using vis-a-vis Arabs and Palestinians. So the context is a lot more polarized. Uh, I think Israel is a lot more polarized. And the atrocities committed against Israel as well are far worse than what Israel had ever had to sustain since the War of Independence. And so that in, in every respect, we're in unknown territory in comparison to all these other iterations where Benjamin Netanyahu was always saying a war in Gaza is always about mowing the lawn of, of, of radicals. And then kind of, you know, it's a limited operation for a couple of days. You you erode Hamas's capability and then you have a couple of years of peace and then you continue as if nothing had happened. I think this the Israelis are now beyond that point. Mm. Yes, they speak about eradicating Hamas completely. Uh, I, I suppose this is what makes it, what, the most dangerous situation in many, many, many years. 
It is it is so dangerous because there is no military solution to this. There is no military solution to Hamas. There's never been a military solution to Hamas, obviously. And I think that's the problem with Israel and has been the problem for Israel for quite a long time is that Israel has been looking for operational solutions, military solutions to what are essentially political strategic problems. And there is a complete mismatch between the ends of what Israel is trying to achieve, stability, security, uh, and kind of coexistence with Palestinians. Uh, if that, you know that's the objective, and then you look at the means that Israel has been using, particularly the military ones, disproportionate in in all respects, uh, completely uh, ignoring international law, international humanitarian law. This context now is a is is a strategic one which is so problematic on so many different levels that the Israeli military as well is put in a situation where it where it cannot win uh, because there is no military solution to it and the IDF is being put in a situation where it has to achieve something that it cannot achieve by military means because the political leadership is unable unwilling and potentially also strategically incapable of understanding that nothing can be achieved through military means and uh, going into a highly populated area such as uh, Gaza in against an enemy like Hamas that has prepared for urban combat in a way that probably uh, no other defendant power I can think of has done in, in recent decades. I think the the, the, the kind of uh, comparison that people make, militarily speaking, is Fallujah 2004, when American troops had to try to move in uh, into, uh, into Iraq, into uh, the city of Fallujah to eradicate Al-Qaeda. And at that point, obviously, Al-Qaeda didn't have 15 years to prepare, didn't have a tunnel system, it didn't have the ability uh, of reinforcing uh, bunkers, and, and kind of fortify themselves deep inside the city, which is what Hamas has done, uh, which makes it so much more complex, so much more problematic, you know, and, and then obviously on top of all of that, it's it's the human cost as well, humanitarian cost of going in and killing civilians and doing that, achieving your military objectives without actually putting civilians at risk. That is impossible. Iran. Thus far, it would seem that Iran, in terms of their asymmetric warfare strategy, they seem to be benefiting. But... I wonder to what extent you judge uh, Tehran is complicit in the Hamas attack, and and what do you make of the threat by Iran of a preemptive action? This is the most serious concern, to be honest. I mean, uh, you know, beyond the concern for civilian life on the ground, which you know should be guiding us in everything that we're doing, um, there is the concern that it could get far worse, not just for Palestinians but also for the region as a whole. If Iran uh, decided to actually get involved full, wholeheartedly or even half-heartedly, um, Iran's threat so far suggests that they will respond by indirect means, which is understandable. Iran would use its vast surrogate network against Israel uh, and uh, Iranian surrogates and militia groups are in Lebanon. I mean, Hezbollah being the most prominent one, but then there are more in, in, in the Golan in the south of Syria. Um, there, there are others in the West Bank as well who are well-organized, funded who could also kick off, and they haven't so far. So we're still looking from an Israeli point of view at the status quo today as a fairly limited operation, uh, even if it's an operation that is unwinnable and it's complex as it is, it's on one front. Even if Hezbollah has obviously tried to, to attack IDF positions in northern Israel, it has done so with quite a lot of restraint. To, so I would say in many ways the Hezbollah uh, relationship is still one that is guided by the same unwritten rules and norms over the last, you know, since 2006, whereby, you know, a certain threshold is not being crossed. And I think at this point, no threshold has been crossed. However, I think Hezbollah is probing and probing. And the question is, uh, to what extent is Israel responding? I think neither side, neither Hezbollah or Israel are willing to escalate further beyond this point. 
at this moment. But obviously, as this operation in Gaza on the ground is continuing with, uh, you know, allegations of ethnic cleansing, with more and more civilian death coming in, uh, with more and more, you know, unprecedented violence being unleashed on Palestinians, we're in a situation where Hezbollah might have to feel, where we might have to respond or will feel pressure to respond. And if that happens, well, how how much is Israel prepared for this? So I think Iran is in a, in a position where it can act with or alongside some of it, its actors. But as one important point to make here is that Iranian surrogates retain a degree of agency and autonomy that very, very rarely gets discussed because most of the time we're looking at these agents like Hamas, like Hezbollah, or the militants group like the Houthis, for example, as in Yemen, as as being somewhat just Iranian surrogates who are just there to be um, activated and deactivated by Iran or the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards. This is not the case. So Hamas, Hezbollah, and also the Houthis retain a large degree of agency uh, and also kind of uh, have the ability to, uh, you know, dictate their own terms and and act on their own interests as well and don't need to wait for, for Iranian uh, guidance on this. Um, so while Iran is supporting financially in terms of training, technology, it's doing that anyway, and it's not coming with any real strings attached. So it, it provides its surrogates, especially Hezbollah, with the ability to uh, decide on the ground how it sees best to react and behave in the interest of Hezbollah, which then has ripple effects uh, in terms of serving the interests of Iran. And Hamas? The important thing is Hamas obviously has received funding, has received aid from, from Iran, in the past. But to say that Iran pre-planned this operation suggests that Hamas is a unitary actor that is supported by Iran. And I think, again, this is a narrative that the Israelis have put out, that the narrative is Hamas is ISIS, Hamas is this unitary actor, is hierarchically controlled, when in reality Hamas is a network of different actors where the left hand often doesn't know what the right hand does. This operation obviously needed so much planning over such an extended period of time that there were, would have been too many risks of this being done cross-country uh, involving a lot of different actors, uh, you know, in Lebanon, in Iran, with different actors, uh, for example, Hamas leadership in Qatar being involved in this. If if any one of them had been involved in this, the 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 likelihood and vulnerability of, of this getting leaked would have been just way too high. And, and, then, and hence why they wanted to retain that degree of dissociation and let them get on with it without yeah. all these different actors being involved. And, and the point you're making, and it's an important one, is that it's not a case where... Iran says to Hezbollah, okay, you go, and it says to Hamas, okay, you go, and it says to uh, surrogates in Syria or surrogates, okay, this is it, you all go. Because as you point out, each of these uh, militias, these groups, these organizations have their own interests, their own approach, their own sense of who they are and on the ground. And while they take the support from Iran, they don't take complete direction from, from the Iranians. But, but let me ask you about Saudi Arabia now, because Saudi Arabia's position on Palestine has shifted quite remarkably since the attack. Before 7th of October, Mohammed bin Salman seemed poised to join the Abraham Accords. The push was on, certainly from the Americans. Netanyahu was gunning for it. Now the Saudis are doubling down on support for Palestine. Is that due in part to the fact that they just do not want to cede the Palestinian card to Iran? It's a very complex question. Number one, I'd say Saudi Arabia never wanted to join the Abraham Accords because that's a UAE-led initiative and it has no it's no bargaining position whereby you can basically the Abraham Accords 
gave all the benefits to Israel without demanding anything in return. That was something that Saudi never wanted to do, never can afford to do, considering where public opinion is in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi always said any normalization would have to be tied to some sort of deal for the Palestinians. Uh, and clearly now in this current information environment in the Arab world, it's impossible to even move in this direction also knowing that the Netanyahu government is unwilling to ever make any concessions in this regard. So it was clear that Saudi had to take a step back. I don't think it's dead. I think Saudi still has the same interest that it had a week ago or 10 days ago in terms of having some sort of relationship with Israel. But there's so many different ways of managing that relationship. And I think what we're seeing as well is that the Abraham Accords are dead. They were unable, clearly, as everybody was saying, unable to deliver anything for the Palestinian cause. Uh, it was clear that, you know, the UAE are not in any way in a leveraged position and they haven't used any of of that relationship that they've built with Israel to get something out for the Palestinians. And more so, it was supposed to be this sort of an alliance by the US to build an anti-resistance sort of coalition against Iran as well. And I think Iran very much is now in the driver's seat when it comes to the Palestinian cause. And I think that leads to polarization. There's a bit of competition going on between Riyadh and Tehran of who can own this Palestinian cause and who can you know, position themselves as the, the rightful defender of the Palestinian cause. And I think that's something that Westerners, particularly the US government, uh, re repeatedly has completely disregarded because they thought the Palestinian cause was dead and it was never dead. And now it's quite the contrary. The Saudis don't want to give that field to the Iranians. And I think it's an interest in the US as well. There should be an interest to make sure that you don't leave that field of Palestinian cause to the IRGC and the Iranians, but that you are, you know, that you have Arab partners that you can talk to who own that cause and who act also in the interest of Palestinians. And, you know, I think about Qatar, I think about Saudi, I think about Kuwait, uh, who all have agency in this and who all take a position that is not aligned with the US on this. And rightly so. I think it's it's important that, uh, you know, that is, is made clear not to leave the Iranians as the only defenders of, of the Palestinian cause. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, your, your latest book, Subversion, the Strategic Weaponization of Narratives, talks about the use of narratives to change the thinking and behavior of individuals and states. And I think we're seeing this now clearly. And Qatar has been caught up in it with claims that Doha is subsidizing Hamas. Mm. Any truth to well, that particular narrative? Well, it's a narrative, right? Uh, there's always a, a bit of truth to a narrative, but it's a spin on the reality. I mean, the, the, the fact is, Qatar's did this as a, as a means to build a relationship um, with the West, particularly with the United States, making themselves indispensable as a mediator, as they've done with the Taliban office, as they've done uh, with their relationship with Iran, where, again, they can use this as sort of leverage in Washington, and they can use this to make themselves somewhat yeah, indispensable uh, for the US in terms of regional policy. And Hamas, Hamas relationship was a very interesting one because it provided the, the, the countries with a monopoly to speak to the one actor that is keeps on probing Israel. So not only did the, did the US have an interest to uh, for Qatar to host Hanir. They must need a base in Doha. Uh, since 2012, but also the Israelis. I mean, the, the countries have a fairly direct relationship with the Israelis on this. They can speak to the Israelis about it and they can speak to the to Hamas about it. Nobody has that relationship. Nobody in the region has that relationship. The idea, um, and the UAE have kind of been pushing for that, of saying, yeah, but we have that relationship with Israel, we can use that. Problem is the UAE A doesn't have that sort of relationship of trust with Israel. They don't have any ways and route inroads in into the West Bank or into Gaza. But the countries do, 
the countries can speak to both sides and have been absolutely indispensable for any sort of uh, deal that was reached since 2006-7 over Gaza. The countries have been able to speak to both sides in what was in the interest of Israel and and the United States. And so that Hamas office has to be seen within that complex uh, system of statecraft that Qatar has been building of kind of being that interlocutor, the neutral place where everybody can engage with. But it's obviously very easy to to kind of blow this out of proportion and say, oh, look at the countries. They have a relationship with Iran. They have a relationship with uh, with Hamas. And that's been used by certain far-right think tanks. They're funded by the UAE. They're funded by, by, the, by the Israelis who have a problem with both Iran and uh, both Hamas. But obviously, Israeli people who are, you know, outside that circus of public opinion and, and, and media narratives understand how absolutely vital that relationship is and have come to cherish it. And I think while the pressure is mounting on Qatar to somewhat uh, sever relations or kind of dissociate themselves from uh, from Hamas, I think to a great uh, degree, this is something uh, that is impossible if at the same time you want Qatar to still play the mediating role when it comes to hostages, when it comes to humanitarian aid going to Gaza. And particularly, and that's the one thing that very few people are talking about, Qatar has been very, very important in they're also speaking to not just Hamas, but also speaking to Iran throughout this whole process. The reason that Blinken went to Qatar last week is because he wanted to make sure that the countries uh, basically send that message to the Iranians of saying, please don't escalate. Nobody has an interest in escalation. Neither do the Iranians, by the way. But there mm. are certain pink or red lines that, that are being used here. So that kind, that's kind of what the extent of this is. And the last point on this is any money that's gone into the Gaza Strip, any money that's been coming from Qatar to the Gaza Strip into the hands of Hamas has gone through Israeli banks and has to be authorized by Israeli banks, has been signed off by US and Israeli officials. So there is a clear audit trail for where the money went, how much money went where. This is not, and that's what some people build that narrative of some bags of cash being flown into Gaza. That's not how it works. It's all done with all accountability and transparency and all parties involved in this conflict are aware of it. And so everything that we're seeing now is basically just a media narrative. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the defense and security analyst, Dr. Andreas Krieg. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Interesting, you also raised that point about the hostages, and, and Doha has a, a record of uh, securing hostages, uh, most recently these uh, four Russian, uh, four Ukrainian children, rather, that were uh, liberated from, from Russia. They perhaps could play a role there. Let me move on to the situation here and, and in Europe, how our governments responded thus far, which is, you know, Foursquare backing uh, Israel full on. We've seen it with the UK. Does that strike you as a proportionate response or is it adding fuel to the fire? And let me add this as well. You know, there have been these lone wolf attacks. We saw it in, in Brussels uh, this week. We've seen it in America, obviously. What about the increased security risk here? Because Hamas is an Islamist organization. Terrorists will be inspired, will they not, by what is thus far being viewed by Islamists as a great victory. 
you know, what is very concerning for me is the way that this conflict in the Middle East has has basically been exported to our streets and our information environments. The, the amount of mobilization going on in the UK, in the United States, across Europe, where, you know, newspapers have basically done nothing else but reporting on this. It's been the breaking story, breaking, uh, you know, news story for the last 10 days. Uh, and also mobilization and civil society. People are, you know, being pushed into different directions into taking this position or that position. It's becoming very, very polarized. And what concerns me is the mobilization. It's how emotionally involved people get that usually are not involved at all in, in international politics. How everyone who doesn't care about international relations usually and clearly doesn't under, don't understand the complexity of this conflict have been sucked in and thinking that they now need to also express an opinion and potentially even demonstrate for one side or the other. It, it translates not just by you know facts-based dialogue, but most of it because of the nature of our social media environment has become so polarized, emotive, and you know involving hate speech, involving uh, selective information, narratives that are very much weaponized one side against the other. Uh, it's become so toxic that it becomes very difficult to even have dialogue or objective objective discourse on the matter. And adding fuel to fire is that how policymakers in the West are responding to this instead of calming tensions and trying to find dialogue and seeing that there are two sides to the story, at least, they're taking a very one-sided approach, not listening to what I still think is a majority concern for people in Gaza and the concern of Palestinians, despite the fact that Israelis had to obviously endure horrors uh, during these terrorist attacks. The one doesn't negate the other. And that's an, that's an Israeli information warfare approach, the PSYOP approach of creating this false dichotomy of saying you're either stent with Israel or you're stent with the terrorists, it kind of suggests that there is some sort of binary choice that people have to make. And obviously it's far more complex than that. And, and, and binary choices such as this have been translated into policymaker and lawmaker communications in the West as well, where UK government, German government, French government, US government have kind of came up, came up with the same response of saying, are you standing with the terrorists uh, or are you standing with Israel? Uh, and obviously, as an objective analyst or anyone who's not directly sucked into this should take the middle approach, which is both sides you know, are to be considered here. But also the strategic context of this has been completely blanked out, um, that most of the discourse is just looking at the atrocities committed by Hamas in isolation of everything that's been going on in Palestine, everything that's been done against Palestinian civilians over the last 70 years, but definitely the last 18 months. Uh, and nobody's talking about how this has fueled a lot of the radicalization. Nobody's talking about the situation in Gaza that's been like this for 17 years, fueling and mobilizing people. So that strategic context has been left out and it has been left out by people who should know better. And it has been left out by uh, by policymakers. And the politics of this are built around is built around narratives in the UK as well, where we see that increasing those people who know about the conflict in the FCDO, in the MOD, uh, in civil service are being completely left out. I mean, their opinion which is obviously far more balanced, are not being heard, but it's all driven by politics, uh, by policymakers who feel that they need to make a point for Israel. Uh, and that's very concerning. And the disconnect between public opinion and policymaker opinion is something that will lead to more mobilization. And I am concerned that you will have these lone wolf hate crimes against Jews, hate crimes against Muslims, a rise of anti-Semitism, rise of anti of Islamophobia, all happening at the same time. And our policymakers staying basically very quiet about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, dangerous, very dangerous situation. But as ever, the dominant player is the US. Uh, and there does mm -hmm. seem to be a, a somewhat more nuanced approach with the Biden administration than, than we've seen thus far here in the UK. 
seemingly Biden attempting to rein in Israel on the humanitarian side uh, while supplying them with the weapons to prosecute the war. I guess that's a classic of on the one hand and on the other. But how effective do you think the American strategy is? And particularly bearing in mind that Biden is in Israel as we're talking, let, let us see what what he can achieve. What do you think he can could get out of this? What does he want to get out of this? And what's realistic for him? Well, over the last couple of years, we've always overestimated the leverage that the US has over Israel, especially over Netanyahu. I mean, the relationship between Netanyahu and Biden isn't a good one. Netanyahu never enjoyed, never liked democratic uh, presidents. And so it's not like uh, if the US were telling uh, Israel to stop, that they would stop. I mean, this they made it very clear, the Israelis and all, you know, everyone who represents that Israeli government have said this is an Israeli operation, it's an Israeli war, we've been attacked, and this is, you know, our way of dealing with it, and we'll lead it. You can support, um, but, you know, you're not in no way in a position to tell us how to lead this war. And that's part of the problem of the narrative in general, is just because it might be justified to Israel to defend itself, which is a concern in ethics that we call juz atbalam, the idea of what making a war just or not, the cause just or not. It doesn't mean that the means that Israel is using are justified, which is just in bellow. And I think it's these two debates which be, become very uh, conflated uh, by academics, analysts, and, and particularly those who speak out in favor of, of Israel. And the question is to what extent the Biden administration and Biden himself personally can now tread that fine line of saying, yes, we allow Israel to defend itself and go against Hamas after the atrocities committed, but at the same time respect international law, international humanitarian law, which we now already see in Israel has been breaking. I mean, there's been war crimes being committed. We've seen violations, grave violations of international humanitarian law, and, and the, America has not said nothing. Uh, and when they now came out, I think the first time that Biden administration even came out saying, actually, there is a problem in, in Palestine, there is a humanitarian crisis we need to be concerned about, that was a, a seven or eight days into that operation. So America has done itself a huge disservice. It's losing control over Israel, but at the same time, it's also losing in global public opinion. I think what we don't do is we don't really reflect on how the rest of the world, i.e. not the West and not the Arab world, is seeing this conflict. Because obviously it's a global conflict. Everyone is somewhat involved. And people in the global South and Asia, uh, and in Africa, and in South America as well, look at this conflict and take a much more nuanced approach. And then they're saying, okay, look, there are two measures that are being applied here by the European Union and the US uh, when it comes to Israel committing war crimes and when it comes to Russia committing war crimes. Um, and so people are saying, oh, this is a flawed moral uh, equivalent be between Israel and Russia. That's not what I'm saying. What, what I'm saying is we we need to apply norms and laws without any sort of differentiation to, towards any sort of any party, regardless of who they are. And we're not doing it. Uh, we take, you know, we, we immediately went on the Israeli side when it happened, blindly following an Israeli lead on this in an operation that is, I think, poorly planned, uh, has no real strategy and ethically is very questionable. You've got the UK military now sending support, the US military sending support. You, you're becoming complicit in an operation that you cannot control. Uh, mm. And I think that's very problematic. And the Russians and the Chinese are having a field day because they're like they're yeah. calling out every sort of inconsistency in our narrative. You know, for the last 18 months, been calling out Russia in the Ukraine, rightly so. But we're not calling out Israel. And I think that is causing a lot of damage for the credibility of the, the rules based order and, and, and Western policymakers. Well, you've anticipated my final question, Andreas, which is uh, how do you see Russia and China playing the war to their strategic advantage. I mean, it's a propaganda matter, which Russia will, will play very well. But 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 other other aspects of a strategic gains that the Chinese and the Russians might get out of this. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is 
we're talking about gains in the information environment and they shouldn't be underestimated uh, because it's obviously it takes to shift consensus on us leadership in the world that uh, will take time but it's it's smaller it's not even small it's bigger things like this i think i would even go as far as saying the us silence on this has been probably the most damaging thing us has done for its reputational credibility legitimacy since the war in iraq in 2003 20 years ago because it has taken way too long it's been way too biased and we don't understand what it will do in the long run uh, because eventually we'll have to come out we have to reflect we have to do the lessons learned and then we'll see actually that we've we know we overstepped the mark and the chinese and the russians are using this to gain some sympathy however uh, and i think that's an important part is neither russia nor china in real terms can play any role on the ground and nobody in the arab world is wants the chinese to intervene now to play a mediation role because they can't play it they don't have that sort of reputation so for the most part uh, russia and china are trolls in this in the information environment rather than constructively proposing anything uh, and to think that china will now mediate the conflict i mean after they brought the saudis and the iranians together uh, everyone was like oh now they're moving on to israel palestine they're not because they're not involved they don't understand it and also neither of the parties are, have any interest in talking to the chinese on this and so it, their role as a mediator is just not there same goes for russia i mean russia is so bogged down in its own problems in its own war uh, in ukraine Ukraine that you know that Russia has no capacity or or breadth to do anything in this regard. So um, I think we need to uh, you know be very careful to overstate the the wins for for Russia and China. But it's certainly in the information environment in terms of reputational risk. I do see in the great power competition, which is mostly in the information environment. I do see that they are scoring some points against the United States. Mm, yeah. Well, it's a. Uh very much a, a an evolving situation and uh, i guess at this point andreas we can we can hope that cooler heads do prevail but um Absolutely. it seems rather unlikely at this stage thank you thank you so much for this great pleasure thank you will you've been listening to the arab digest podcast my guest today was andreas krieg andreas is an assistant professor at the defense studies department of king's college london and a strategic risk consultant working for governmental and commercial clients in the Middle East. His latest book, Subversion, the Strategic Weaponization of Narratives, was published earlier this year by Georgetown University Press. I recommend it highly. I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcasts. Since we launched three years ago, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times. So a big thank you to all our listeners. You'll no doubt have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising, and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Andres. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of more than 180 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.